Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 204. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King. Uh, thank you, Lord, for bringing us together uh, week by week. We know that... Um, it's our responsibility and duty to press in and to avail ourselves of the um, the material, the text, um, your scriptures. Um, it's not just going to automatically uh, drop into our lap and uh, uh, find its way into our heart and into our head. Um, it's an exercise, and so we we take it very seriously these times that we can come together and um, uh, focus on what you're trying to say to us and speak to us. So Holy Spirit, we give you free reign. We give you the room. Um, please allow us to uh, have uh, a better understanding of uh, the things that we're reading and that we're mulling over and that we're meditating on and that we're chewing on. Um, Lord, we want to be prepared. We want to be um, equipped. We want to be usable vessels for your kingdom, just ambassadors for your name. So help us to continually uh, seek to um, make ourselves available and make ourselves usable. That means we need to uh, consciously turn away from sin and the things that would um, uh, bring us down and make our vessels unusable, unclean. Um, uh, help us just to continue to press in and know that the Master has gone before us, uh, Messiah Yeshua. Uh, he's already gone before us, Lord, and He has done the things that... Um, we think we can't do. And so we operate under his power and his strength. And so help us to be um, lights and salt and lights to those around us uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for uh, each and every student who's joined me during these uh, live studies. Um, bless us, protect us, continue to provide for us and raise us up. Strengthen us. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Uh, my name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and this is another live internet study broken up into two parts. Section or segment one is an hour long, and it's given over to a study on um, a um, uh, eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. As you can see on your screen, or we're going to be finishing up uh, talking about how to study scripture in, in its various ways. We started that last week. The second uh, segment of these hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long live studies is given over to an apologetic work called um, A Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. If you're not aware about that, aware of it, I uh, hope you can stick around for the entire hour, hour-and-a-half-long study. If not, be sure to watch my YouTube channel as I upload the videos um, parts one, two, and three to segment A, and then parts uh, one and two to segment uh, B uh, throughout the week. And um, just subscribe and hit the bell so you can be notified whenever I do upload new videos. All right, let's jump right into segment A, um, the uh, eschatology study, end time events. Remember, we looked a long time ago, well, I shouldn't say a long time ago, it's, it's only been a few studies. We looked at this um, kind of outline that we're going to be looking at um, different topics throughout this particular study. Eventually, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. Primarily, this is a study on the book of Revelation. But in order to get there and to appreciate all of the resources that Revelation utilizes, uh, we have to step backwards into the Bible and pull key texts from certain authors uh, such as Daniel, the book of Daniel, um, certain key Old Testament uh, prophets such as uh, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Zechariah, um, other minor prophets, you know, Micah, Joel, things like that. Uh, we're also going to pull in um, passages from um, the Gospels, um, you know, all, all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think, at least. I don't think John has anything uh, rele uh, particularly relevant that, I'm, that I might need to, but I could be wrong. 
And when and then don't forget, um, First and Second Thessalonians are also heavily uh, eschatological when it comes to um, rapture uh, details and things like that, resurrection details. So overall, again, just keep in mind that this is really a study on the Book of Revelation, but we haven't even opened, we haven't even cracked open the Book of Revelation yet. And I don't want to lose anyone with all the preliminary. Um, uh, how to study the scripture or uh, things like that. Uh, so tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this part up real quick, this building a case for a literal hermeneutic like you can see on my screen. I'm going to talk about this, the study of how to interpret. I'm going to wrap it up and I'm going to do it like in five minutes. Uh, and then I'm going to give us a sneak peek, kind of whet your appetite towards some of the topics that we're going to be looking at later on the study, and I want to pull in one of the biggies, one of the ones that's a little more controversial for many people, and that's we're going to talk about the timing of the rapture and or the timing of the whole what we might call the tribulation period, what some people call the seven-year tribulation. We're going to be looking at that tonight, but it's not going to be the total um, uh, um, study on that. That's still later on down the road. It's later on down in my outline. But I want to give you a sneak preview so I'll kind of whet your appetite and help you to perhaps say, okay, that study looks pretty good. I want to I want to stick around for the rest of it. But let me first finish up this. I started this last week. I didn't finish it. I'll go back and listen to last week's study, episode number 204. Building a case for a literal hermeneutic. Uh, let me read this first paragraph, and then um, I'll just hit the highlighting uh, details. These are my own words. This is not available on my, online anywhere. This I'm still working from kind of a Word document. Uh, I've, I haven't decided whether or not I want to turn this into a, uh, a commentary yet. I know it'll be a lot easier for people if I just did just have a commentary. So until the time takes place, if you want this information, the best way is just to follow the live studies or listen, catch the podcast that I'm uploading. If not, if you absolutely need something that you need to go back and read, because I'm not going to upload everything into the comment section of the YouTube video. But if you need something that you can uh, read, um, email me, right? Go to my website at tatator.com or go to my YouTube channel and uh, look through the comment section. Then my uh, 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 website address is given there. Email me and I'd be more than happy to share the, the Word document or a, the PDF version of it with you or something like that. But the, the, the word of caution, as I'm updating the documents, things change. So you might not always have the, the most recent version. So let me read this real quick. Uh, as I mentioned, I don't want to spend too long in this section, maybe make it five, five minutes long and then save more time for the, um, the, the, what I call the kind of the really exciting part of the study. Uh, these are my own words as a Messianic Jewish student, as well as um, teacher of scripture. I personally prefer the overarching literal face value approach, uh, especially when studying um, end time events. Um, as we're going to see, there are some advantages to this uh, approach. This essentially locates me in the camps of both the historicists as well as the futurists. Now, remember, there are at least four that most prophecy teachers recognize. If you want to say there's more, that's fine. But there's four main ones, more main views which approach end time prophecy. And we're talking about those four in no, in no particular order. There's the futurist version of, of interpreting end time prophecy. There's the historicist version. There's the preterist perspective or version. And then there's what we might call the um, um, idealist perspective, perspective. And we talked about those last time. And you can see I'm kind of scrolling upwards uh, into the document. And you can see those again. Catch last week's YouTube channel videos. Or um, uh, you can reach out and ask me and I'll, I'll uh, like I said, you can email me and I'll give you a kind of a overview of what I'm talking about. But so um, for me, of those four, 
because I prefer the face value approach, the literal approach, um, in other words, what the scripture says is, is essentially what it means. And um, I'm, I try to avoid allegorizing and spiritualizing things like that because that's my perspective. Then I'm more closely aligned with the historicist and futurist versions when I'm reading through, say, um, books like uh, the book of Revelation, like we're going to get to. So because of that, um, I say which from the perspective of of the human author, right, the one who wrote the Bible, actually pinning the uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired words conveniently allows, in my opinion, for some specific prophetic text to have both a, quote, near, end quote, i.e. historical, as well as a far, quote, unquote, i.e. future application based on context. And so we kind of talked about this a little bit in my pre-show uh, chat with the people who are live in live study with me now. When you're reading through prophecies, it's almost as if some of the prophecies from the point vantage point of the person who's writing it, like say the, the author John, who's exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, sometime either as early as the 60s or as late as the 90s AD, depending on where you place the timing of the book of Revelation. The events that he's writing about may have been right around the corner, such as, for instance, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, right? Uh, when John was writing, maybe within a short 10 or 20 year window, some of the events might have come to pass, right? Some of the tribulation for the believers that he was describing may have actually happened right right shortly thereafter. We would call that a near-term um, fulfillment. But when we look through the prophecies that are left for us, particularly in John's revelation, in Yeshua's revelation given to John, the apocalypse, we begin to realize that there's no way that all of those details could fit into the historical event that we now know is the destruction of the of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, or even the subsequent expulsion of the Jews later on closer to the into the 130s, like with Bar Kokhba and all of that, we can begin to realize that there are details that are still yet future. So we can now say that parts of the prophecy from John's vantage point were near to him, and parts were farther away from him. And even though some of the language is very similar, right? For instance, um, God allowed the temple to be destroyed in 70 AD, and yet there are prophecies that seem to indicate that a, that a temple or some significant structure is going to be rebuilt in the future in which a figure known as Antichrist or um, um, you know, some, some very world powerful leader, a powerful world leader, is going to go into that temple structure or whatnot. I don't know if it'll be a tabernacle type structure or a temple. It could be either one. But um, he's going to go in there and he's going to do X amount of defilement to that particular temple, stop the sacrifices from being uh, offered and, and put an end to those, uh, those uh, practices. And yet there isn't any structure that allows for that to take place currently here in the year 2023. So we then must admit that those details must be future. So we now we have what's called near, i.e. historical, and far, uh, i.e. Um, future. So that's kind of what I'm uh, uh, getting at there. I go on to say, essentially, I personally find very little that I can relate with in either the idealist view or the preterist view, but arguably I believe that both of them do have their limited merits. So again, I'm not going to throw all the views. I'm not going to throw the views that I don't use under the bus and say they're worthless. Um, each view has its merit. I just try to make sure I use the tool correctly uh, uh, for the job that I need it for. Continuing, having said that, let's go over five important 
principles of a good face value hermeneutic, since that's the uh, um, uh, hermeneutic, which the word hermeneutic is just a big fancy word that means, um, well, let's just define it. Let me let, me let the uh, Google define it for us. Uh, hermeneutic, dictionary definition, adjective, concerning interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. Noun, a method or theory of interpretation. That's all we're talking about. A theory of interpretation, a method of interpretation. I like to think of it as your own personal um, uh, lenses that you use to view the Bible. So if you have, everybody has their own kind of preferences. Everybody has their own kind of um, personal or individual. When I say personal, I don't mean that it's, it's, so broad that, every, that there are millions of different perspectives. That's not what I mean when I say personal. Um, I mean, whether you know it or not, when you read through the Bible, you have kind of a preconceived idea of what you think it's talking about. And if you put enough people together, you'll find that there are categories. And the categories can be grouped together as either um, historicist, futurist, idealist, or preterist, or something like that. That's what I mean by own, everyone has their own personal um, I don't believe that when the Bible was put together that it's supposed to be so incredibly personal that everybody's perspective is accurate. That can't possibly be the way the Bible should be interpreted. Ideally, God's perspective is the only one that truly matters, right? But then God wanted to convey his perspective, God's perspective, to the human author writing the scriptures down, and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to drive that um, experience. How much that human author understood at the time, we don't know. Sometimes we have little glimpses that they did fully understand what they were writing down. Other times, like in Daniel's case, oftentimes he would stop and ask the angel, um, what am I seeing here? What Can you explain this to me? It puzzles me. John went through the same experience. You know, the angel would tell him something. Um, you know, John wrote it down. And then John wrote down that he asked the angel, um, and what does this mean? You know, I don't understand what I'm looking at. You know, I'm looking at a beast. He comes up out of the sea. He's got seven heads. He's got ten horns. I mean, what the heck is going on? And the angel has to explain to him the beast that you saw is, and then he kind of gives it, you know, gives him a, a definition. So let's seek to uh, better understand the Bible using um, the tools that we have, but also realize that some of the methods are going to yield a better understanding. That's probably a little closer to what the original author intended and God intended than others, because they're going to be more rooted in fact and uh, uh, um, um, uh, less speculation, less uh, what we might call uh, uh, interpolation, more just exegeting of the passage. So I'm not going to spend too much time on these five points. I'm just read the, the bolded points and you can kind of get the idea. Point number one is we need to seek to understand the author's or the author's intended meaning. And that's just kind of the given, right? Um, don't open up your Bible and say, Lord, what does this mean to me right away? First, ask, Lord, what did it mean to them? The them being the author and the intended recipients, the, the audience that he was writing to, right? The contemporary group that was uh, alive at the time that the um, words were penned. That's That should be your first. And my understanding... That should be your first. Uh, if, it, if it isn't, I mean, eventually you should get around to that, especially when we're talking about end-time prophecy. Uh, number two, all scripture must be taken in its proper context. We've all seen the bumper sticker. Context is king. That just goes without saying, right? Context is always should be driving um, our understanding. Meaning, if you don't understand a verse, go back and read the entire chapter. If you don't understand the chapter, go back and read a few chapters around that chapter. If you don't understand that, read the whole book. If you don't understand that, Maybe you need to start reading the whole Bible all over again, right? Context is king. Number three, always compare scripture with other scripture. The best interpreter of scripture, Martin Luther said, 
is scripture, right? That you can see the quote down there at the bottom. You guys remember Martin Luther, right? Um, scripture is given so that we can uh, interpret other scripture. And we were talking about this also in uh, before my uh, class started. We have the benefit now in the, in the modern age of being able to carry the entire Bible in our hands and to be able to read one um, prophecy in one passage in one book of the Old Testament, or example. Let's say we read something out of Isaiah or Ezekiel, and it puzzles us, but we know it refers to some end-time prophecy. We can thumb forward all the way into certain parts of the New Testament, you know, Matthew 24 or 2 or Thessalonians 5 or, or John chapter 18 or something. We can jump right into another part of the Bible that either quotes makes a direct quote because a lot of our Bibles have margin footnotes, um, cross-reference uh, A, B, and C, D, and numbers, and things like that. Or um, if you have an electronic version of your Bible on your smartphone, or your tablet, or, or your laptop or desktop, then uh, everything's hot-linked, right? You read a verse, and you click on a little footnote link, and it jumps and pulls up a little uh, floating window and shows you where it's found somewhere else in the Bible. It gives you, like, language tools, you know, uh, concordances, lexiconic aids, and things like that. We've got so many resources that we, it's, for us, it's almost a given that we should be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. That maybe not so, you know, a, a thousands of years ago, at least at least two thousand years ago, or even earlier. There's no way that every person had access to every scroll or every parchment that contained all the older or other documents, right? We we're talking about how that John wrote the Book of Revelation um, while in exile on the island of Patmos. Um, last time I checked, prisoners aren't afforded the luxury of having all the scrolls with them. Now you might have had them might have had access to, you know, those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and those peoples who wrote uh, both before, during, and after the exile of Israel, from which he draws a lot of his um, themes, especially when he's talking about um, uh, Mystery Babylon in chapter 17 and 18 of, of Revelation. So maybe he had those, but we don't know for certain that he did. And if he didn't, then how could he have thumbed back and forth back and you know how could he always compare scripture to scripture to understand what's going on but we have that now so we really have no excuse um number four determine the literal references of figures of speech that provide comparison substitution and amplification remember when you're looking at old test i'm sorry when you're looking at apocalyptic literature it's a style of writing that employs a lot of symbolism a lot of um of uh, types and shadows a lot of um, uh, animals are used, right? We, we jokingly say there's lions and tigers and bears all over the uh, the book of Revelation. There's all these beasts, right? Seven heads and ten horns and things like that. We, I think we can kind of ascertain right away that, that even though John may have been seeing a, a beastly creature in the vision at the time, and thus he wrote exactly what he saw, just like Daniel wrote when he saw the beasts and Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a real statue in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter uh, uh, 7, when he, he has the, uh, Daniel himself has the vision with the four uh, beasts. I think they actually saw the real beasts. They saw physical creatures, right? A lion, a bear, a leopard, uh, a dragon, or whatnot. Uh, you know, Revelation chapter 12, the dragon comes up out of the sea and things like that. I think they really saw the real creatures at the time, because that's what... God's Holy Spirit was showing them, and so they wrote what they saw. But it was probably evident to them, and if it wasn't, it should be evident to us, that those animals and those those symbols stood for something else. And usually later on in the writing, the angel or whoever's dictating the vision and explaining it to the writer would tell them, well, this stands for this, you know, um, this means this, this symbol stands in for this, you're right, Revelation chapter 17, the woman that you saw sitting on the beast, you drop all the way down to the end of chapter 17, it says she's a city, 
Is that a literal city? Could be. Is it a symbolic city? Could be, right? But either way, he uh, the, the the symbols are kind of um, uh, defined within usually uh, the vision itself. So we need to be aware of those literal references, figures of speech, right? Um, I'm fond of noticing that often for end time prophecy, God likes to use this phrase is near or is at the doors, right? Um, you know, it's near. And yet when we look at the details that are outlined and we pull out our newspaper and look at historical events, we begin to scratch our heads and realize that there's been about 2000 years since the nearness of this thing, right? God, how could you say it's near and at the door, right? Uh, why would you tell the people in, in that day that it's near as if it was like next week or next month or next year? But now it's been, you know, they're dead, long dead and gone and it still hasn't happened yet. And yet God calls it near. You know, we need to look at the figures of speech that to us near to God might not be near to what we think. And then number five, recognize the near far implications and applications in prophetic passages. And again, um, we uh, I kind of hit hinted at that uh but since this is kind of a very very important aspect let me just read this part and then i'll i'll shut this part down um so we got to recognize the near slash far implications and applications in prophetic passages it is common i say in prophetic literature for there to be both a near application in case you didn't catch this earlier because i was talking too fast you're going to catch it now a near and a far application to a certain prophecy a few examples will illustrate this a near future judgment will be predicated on or predicted on a nation followed by a prediction of far future judgment on the whole world. So you see, we have the near is given to a, a localized group of people. Let's say God is telling Israel he's going to judge them, send them off into exile, or punish them for a sin of idolatry or harlotry or something like that, right? That's found commonly throughout the Old Testament. And yet, later on, we have this future judgment that God's going to pour out on the entire world for the for the world's rejection of God's truth, the rejection of, of God as the one true God for engaging in the idolatry. And we know as believers that this judgment must fall, right? God is a God of righteousness. He can't simply wink at sin and make it go away, you know, like wiggle his nose like uh, Tabitha did in uh, in uh, Bewitched or something like that, right? Or fold his hands and blink his head like I dream of genie, right? It doesn't work like that with God. There must be um, a payment. There must be judgment. There must be punishment for sin. And thankfully, there's also grace and mercy and forgiveness for those who find it. But the point I'm trying to make is, when you read through, for instance, say Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul describes how that judgment is going to come upon the entire world someday because of the wickedness that the world engages in. Even though the world isn't in direct special revelation revel, uh, relationship with God, such as the, the body of Messiah or even covenant Israel, nevertheless, the entire world is responsible for their actions and for their rejection of the truth. And that's where judgment has to come in. So we recognize that when we're talking about near far prophecies, we can see this. I continue. The letters, for instance, in Revelation to the seven churches were relevant, we must admit, to their immediate audience and included specific items of praise and condemnation by Yeshua, right? Go back and read those. We're going to study the book of Revelation, and the first three chapters are given over to given over given over to addressing those seven churches and we can glean some information there but i don't want to spend too much time there but suffice to say um we could either say that those apply to churches throughout uh church eras or epics throughout history we could also say it generally applies to the state of affairs of in the body of messiah today and find out which church kind of fits 
uh, the application for us. There's a lot that we can glean from there. I continue. These letters also mention the coming of Messiah and are thus relevant to the final generation that will be on earth when he returns, right? We must admit that that there are certain parts of prophecy that simply haven't been fulfilled yet in time prophecy, and it would do well to study because we might just find ourselves taking play, uh, uh, end up in those events. We're going to look at some of that tonight, so don't tune me out. Don't click away from the video just yet. Um, hope you can stick around when, when I do give the kind of the sneak preview of some of the end time events that we just might um, find ourselves in in the end of days. And finally, I say there are several Old Testament or Tanakh passages that speak of the two comings of Messiah back to back, as it were, as if they were one event. Um, details about his first coming, details about his second coming that lead the reader to almost assume that they're just one um, coming or one uh, arrival or one event. Uh, the ancient rabbis f- fell into this uh we could almost call it a trap, as it were, where they would say, well, there aren't two messiahs, so, but there's there's a, this glorious appearing, and then there's this kind of suffering uh, appearing, you know, they described it as a suffering servant, and then, then there was this, this glorious kind of champion uh, servant, uh, or, or, or uh, you know, warrior type figure. Um, some rabbis described it as the uh, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. And the ben Yosef was the kind of the poorly uh, suffering guy. And the, the ben David was the, the kind of the, the reigning king, um, kingly uh, uh, ruling type of Messiah. And so the rabbis kind of scratched their heads like, you know, is it one guy and he comes twice? Is it two different messiahs, you know, what do we make of this? And it's because of the, what we call, as we're going to see here, the telescoping effect. So um, this phenomenon is called telescoping, right? Um, J. Barton Payne says, quote, biblical prophecy may leap from one prominent peak in predictive topography, like a mountain peak, to another without notice of the valley between right? So we're talking about um, near-far prophecy, without notice of the uh, valley between, which may involve no inconsiderable lapse in chronology. So the the, 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 the human author may write it as if it's one event or uh, one guy coming twice, but he may not know that it actually is maybe one person coming twice or two separate events or something like that. He may know, he may not know. Um, and so those are where we need to be uh, oh, uh, careful when we're reading through prophecy. There's a quote there was from the Encyclopedia of um, Biblical Prophecy, page 137. All right, so um, that that's going to do it for the this section on uh, hermeneutics. I went a little longer than five minutes. It looks like it went almost like 15 or 20 minutes. But um, let's turn now to uh, some details about events that might be happy that are surely happening in the future. But might you might find yourself in uh, these events? I mean, if you live to see the these events happen, this is this is going to be exciting times that we live in. Frightful times that we live in, though, right? Very very frightful if we begin to look at some of the details of what's, what's right around the corner. Um, let's start entertaining a discussion on, and this is just a teaser, so we're not gonna. We I I I absolutely can't do this justice. But let's entertain this topic known as the seventy weeks. And the Messiah, or the seventy weeks, has been termed the seventy weeks of Daniel. And in order to do so, we're turning, we're going to jump into kind of context. We're jumping past a bunch of chapters that we are going to go back and look at, actually starting next week, because I think the schedule calls for us to start looking at um, 
passages related to end time events and things like that. And Daniel is one of the earlier places that we're going to start. Actually, we're going to start way or, or as, as early as maybe the book of Genesis. But um, this is just a teaser, right? So for the next, say, half an hour, let's talk about Daniel's 70 weeks and particularly the 70th week of Daniel. So if you've never heard these terms, you can Google search this, right? Daniel's 70th week. And I already Google searched it for you on this next tab, as you can see on my screen. But let's first read some relevant scriptures related to this concept of Daniel's 70 weeks. Jumping into context, I realize, right, this doesn't really do it justice. So just bear with me. This is a sneak preview. It's a, it's a trailer, if you were to put it in modern terminology. Um, 70 weeks and the Messiah is what it's labeled in the NASB Bible that I've got pulled up on the screen. Starting in verse 24 of chapter 9, so 9.24. And we're going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter, which is verse um, 27. So 9.24 through 27. Very famous section of scripture. Blow that up for us. Does that look good? Yeah, that looks good. Let's blow it up. Um, very famous section of scripture uh, for prophecy buffs, right? 70 weeks of Daniel. All right, let's read this. 70 weeks, starting verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Well, that's verse 24. Let me see. Maybe that might be too big. Uh, no, I think I'll leave it. All right. So we're talking about Daniel's vision. Daniel was given a vision of some end time events, and it was facilitated through the angels that were speaking with him. And a lot of it had to do with um, events that were relevant to him. Because remember, historically, Daniel's exiled in uh, Babylon, Babylon right now. God was judging Israel for her disobedience, for her wickedness, for her harlotry, for her idolatry. He, he allowed the king of um, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to come down and sack Jerusalem. First time a, a Gentile king had done this, right? Which is going to be uh, prominent for us to consider. A, sing, a king had not only um, uh, uh, exiled the people, but had sacked Jerusalem and the temple and carried the people off. Um, and so Daniel's writing from there, from Babylon, and he's praying to God to forgive him and his people for their sins. And he's he's he does have, this time we know for sure, that Daniel has access to um, the, the prophecies that were given prior to the exile, which was Isaiah and Jeremiah, the pre-exilic prophets, wrote and warned Israel to turn away from the sin or else God was going to do the very thing that he just did, send them into exile. And so Daniel, we know that he has access to those um, uh, scrolls. He's contemplating those. But at this point in time, the, the um, angel begins to give him a vision and then to give him some of the details. Starting in verse 25, so you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And then the, 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 the prophecy continues. It will be built again, speaking of the temple, it will be built again with streets and moat even in times of distress. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, or the anointed one, uh, will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he will confirm a covenant. Notice it just jumps he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. And it's odd to us that, that they're using these time markers of weeks. But we're going to find out later on that these are not actually seven-day weeks. 
They're actually years. Uh, and he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. And that's the end of the vision, at least for this part of Daniel. Now, we already know that the other parts of the book of Daniel fill in a lot of the details for some of the events that take place uh, leading up to this, some of the some that take place afterwards. Um, but just for our sneak preview tonight, just for our trailer, teaser trailer, whatever you want to call it, we're just going to focus on Daniel's 70 weeks and Daniel's 70th week. So what we can ascertain is that the, um, the prophecy contain is, is concerning right away, right of the gate, verse 24. This is for your people and your holy city. So we can put in context that this is not a prophecy that generally speaks to the entire world per se. This is rather a prophecy of events that is directly addressed to Daniel's people, i.e. the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and particularly the temple and Jerusalem and, and the, you know, the local environs there. It's been decreed for your people and your holy city. Your people are the Jewish people or the people of Israel. And your holy city is obviously Jerusalem. There's no other context that could be allowed there. Um, and then the, the, um, the, the prophecy mentions that it's to, it mentions all these kind of details, kind of very broadly speaking, to finish the wrongdoings, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So there are all these details that may happen in rapid succession. They may be strung out over a long period of time. The, the, the vision doesn't say right here just yet. But what we do see is that some of the details are spelled out. It says, no one understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem. Well, at the time that Daniel was receiving this prophecy, Jerusalem and the temple had been sacked and destroyed. So Daniel's given assurance from God that the temple would be rebuilt at some point in time in the future. Now, Daniel probably still doesn't know how far into the future, but we do know that from the prophet Jeremiah's perspective, that it was a 70-year exile that was foretold. So Daniel probably has that perspective. After 70 years, we'll be, uh, the exile will be reversed and we'll be able to go back to our land and start rebuilding our temple. This prophecy gives us the assurance that at least the, the, the decree to restore and rebuild the temple will take place. Messiah the Prince, um, up until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We do basic math, seven weeks and 62 weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. If the weeks, even if they're just mere weeks, right, of seven, then we're talking about um, uh, seven and 62 equals 69. I mean, it's just a clever way of saying there will be 69 weeks. In fact, your modern Bibles say just, they, they just say 69 weeks, but, um, the literal Hebrew or Aramaic actually said seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, 62 plus seven is 69. Well, if these were literal weeks and we're just talking about a time frame on our calendar, it's not very long, right? Just a few months, um, or a few years, right? Um, uh, depending on you know how you interpret the word weeks. But what we end up learning is that according to biblical prophecy, what Daniel was really being told was that each week corresponded to a seven-year time period of a 360-day prophetic year, not a 365-day um, solar year like, we're, like we have in our modern calendars. In the Bible, and you can find this out if you just go back and compare scripture script using other passages that talk about how long um, the time was in, in, in reckon according to the biblical time frame. Um, 
a year was 360 days. So um, uh, the week here is a seven-year time period. And thus, when when the Dan when Daniel's told that seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, which we you know uh, uh, sixty-nine weeks, well, we're really talking about um, uh, uh, four hundred ninety years in total. But four hundred eighty-three of them correspond to the sixty-nine weeks. I'll put a little graphic on the screen that kind of helps explain some of that a little bit more as well. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, if, if I if I mix up some of that, those of you are prophecy buffs, you're listening, watching this video, and you're like, no, Ariel, you got your math wrong. Don't worry. I'll flash a little graph on the screen that'll clean my math up there. But the point for our study is that we're talking about a long stretch of time, longer than Daniel would, would be alive to see all of these events take place. To be sure, um, there's no way that the temple could be rebuilt in 62 literal weeks. So we know that it's not literal. That's the point I'm trying to say is it, all of the events couldn't possibly take place in the literal week. We know that it's symbolic of something longer. And indeed, it really was. This is really a snapshot of Israel's history as is seen through the lens of what we're going to later learn is the times of the Gentiles. The times where the... Um, uh, the temple has been destroyed by a Gentile king and is going to be built and then destroyed again. Because, you know, in 70 AD, we know from history that the temple, even though it does get rebuilt, it gets destroyed again by uh, the Roman armies of Titus in 70 AD. So even though the temple is going to be rebuilt um, in time, it still falls within the umbrella of a, of a historical time frame that the Bible refers to as the times of the Gentiles or the trampling down of of the of the temple under the times of the Gentiles, uh, uh, the fullness of the Gentiles and things like that. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11. We're talking about a, a, a slice of Israel's history where Gentile uh, peoples have dominated either the land of Israel to some extent, the land of the, the city of Jerusalem to some extent, and or the temple itself has been suffered uh, under harm or destruction to some extent. So starting with the Babylonian king of Nebuchadnezzar, who um, destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem, starting at that point and moving forward, even currently now in 2023, the temple in Jerusalem still lies in ruins. So we're still within the times of the Gentiles. In other words, we've been in this time period of the times of the Gentiles, and yet we know it's been longer than 400 and so many years. So what we are beginning to realize is that there's actually some form of gap that has moved in. We'll talk about that in a bit. If I get to it tonight, great. If I don't get to tonight, don't be confused. So um, Daniel's told all these details, and after 62 weeks, uh, remember, these are not literal weeks, uh, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the princes to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Wow. In one prophecy, Daniel's told... <laughs> The, 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 the city, and the, you know, you're going to be, you're going to rebuild the temple. It's going to be rebuilt. Oh, but by the way, it's going to be destroyed again. You know I mean, must be like a bit of a downer there for Daniel. Uh, I think this is prophesying the 70 AD uh, destruction there. Uh, its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. And then he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. And this one week that Daniel's told about must refer to another seven-year period. But oddly enough, and we're going to find this out later on, as soon as I turn to the chart, you're going to see this. The 69 weeks of seven years were kind of all clustered together. They all happened in succession, one right after the other. But when it came to the last seven-year time period, the 70th week, there has been this gap of almost 2,000 years between the 69th week and the 70th week. That's really what's going on. Almost every um, well-meaning uh, Bible prophecy student and teacher 
recognizes what I'm describing to you now as this gap between the 69 weeks and this final 70th week. But important for our study, we're going to find out this that just like the previous 69 weeks pertain to Daniel and his people, i.e. the Jewish people and the temple and Jerusalem and all of that, the 70th week likewise pertains to Israel as a people, Jerusalem as a city, and the temple and, and being kind of the focal point of all the events. It's aptly said that God's timepiece is Israel. If you want to know what's going on in the world, look at Israel. If you want to figure out what's on God's agenda, pay careful attention to what's going on with Israel. And so because we've been, we've been in this long gap of 2,000 years, where Israel has been outside of her land for a good chunk of that, where the temple's still destroyed, where Jerusalem has been, you know, parts of Jerusalem are, aren't even under Jewish control, right? Half of Jerusalem is still under Arab control or Palestinian control. Uh, you know, part of it's under control by a certain amount of Christian groups um, and things like that. Uh, Israel is kind of still divided up. You know, there's parts of Israel that are given over to, you know, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And so Israel, even though she's in her land, there's not lasting peace there yet. There's a lot of conflict, right? That's a no-brainer. So when we're looking at these prophecies, and we're going to see as time goes on, and we'll look at more details in time, so don't, don't get confused and disappointed if I'm not giving you everything now. We're going to find out that God is going to slowly start bringing all of these prophecies um, closer and closer to the location in the Middle East where most of the end-time events are going to take place. Um, America, there's not a lot that seems to take place over in America. That's predominantly already predicted in the book of Revelation and, and things like that. Most of what takes place in the book of Revelation seems to be centered in uh, the Middle East, uh, right around, like I said, the epicenter being Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of, seems to, gonna, uh, to take place in uh, the, some of the northern regions north of Israel, either Turkey or maybe uh, western, um, uh, even as far maybe as western Russia or uh uh, Iraq and Iran, right to the to the uh, east of Israel. Um, we could continue moving up to the north and move west a little bit. Turkey. Then we've got um, um, you know the Balkans and uh, uh, you know Croatia and stuff is up in there. Um, and then we start moving a little farther west into Europe, modern day Europe. But what used to be the ancient Roman Empire. And as we're going to find out, a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament were looking forward to a power that would come into existence that we know now know is the Roman Empire, right? And so as we look at future prophecies, well, the Roman Empire isn't around anymore. But what if the Roman Empire were to revive? We wouldn't call it really the Roman Empire. We'd just simply call it the EU, right? Because that's the same geographical area. But the Roman Empire covered more than just Europe and that part of the world that covered parts of Turkey and even over into parts of um, today what we might now call know as uh, uh, Iran and things like that. So um, or Iraq and things. So the point I'm trying to make is a lot of what takes place in in in, in end time prophecy really kind of is centered on parts of the world where perhaps maybe those of us in America aren't even really living. And so it's easy for us to kind of say, well, it's not going to affect me. I don't be so sure because the events that take place in end time prophecy are going to affect the entire world because of the worldwide governmental structures that are going to be imposed. Uh, one world religious system, one world politics, one world economic system, one world buying and selling through the mark of the beast and things like that. Um, one world um, um, persecution of Christians, right? When the Antichrist goes after those who won't take his mark, you think he's only going to go after people in Israel, 
You think he's only going to focus on Jews in Jerusalem? Oh, you you feisty Jews, you're not taking my mark. Um, I'm going to persecute you. But the rest of the world, you guys are uh, scot-free, right? I'm going to let you off. Not on your life. Not only is he going to go after those, those Jews, which he has this fierce demonic hatred of, right? Satanic hatred of, of the Jewish people. But he is going to go after, according to Revelation chapter 12, he's going to go off and make war and persecute Christians as well. Anyone who names the name of God, anyone who defies his claim to be very God himself is going to be the object of his persecution. So this is going to affect everyone in the world. Sooner or later, what he's going to implement in the Middle East, let's just assume his headquarters is in Jerusalem for a moment. Whatever he implements from his headquarters, from his home base there, is going to affect everyone in the world sooner or later. So it doesn't matter where you live, you will be affected. So back to Daniel, right? In the middle of the week, what week? The 70th week, in the middle of this seven-year period, which means the middle is right around a three-and-a-half-year period. In fact, it neatly fits at the three-and-a-half-year period, as we're going to find in other details. He puts it stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come the one who makes desolate, right? This, this um, uh, bad guy. We're going to call him Antichrist, right? Um, because he's, he's in place of Messiah, and he opposes Messiah, which is what anti kind of uh, factors in. Until it compl- and, he's a, and he's a fake Messiah, right? He's going to... He's gonna, He's going to masquerade as the real thing. He's going, to, he's going to make himself out to be Messiah and declare himself to be the Messiah. And a lot of people are going to believe him. He's going to um, make things really bad for the Israel and for Jerusalem, for the Jewish people, um, for the temple, until a complete destruction. One of the decree gushes forth from the one who makes desolate, right? In other words, he's going to meet his own end. Now, let's jump over in these last 15 minutes into some charts. Let's begin to see what this looks like. I've got um, a Google search for Daniel's 70th week chart. And it doesn't really matter which chart you look at per se, the overall scope of what we're looking at in this final 70th week, which is still future, according to my understanding of prophecy, fits the same for just about every chart. So let me blow that chart up for a little bit. This is from Growing Christian Resources. Um, Daniel's 70 weeks in summary. So let's look at this chart for a split second. Now, remember I talked in my hermeneutic section about different ways to understand prophecy. If you're taking the preterist approach to prophecy, where all prophecy is really basically already fulfilled, and that Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 was speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in in 70 AD, well, then you're not really looking for a final 70th week of Daniel to come and hit the scene as a as a Christian or anyone like that. You're looking at all of those destructions and, and desecrations and all those abominations and all that other stuff, persecution and stuff. You're looking through past history uh, for details that kind of fit the description of what Daniel, and you have to stretch a little bit, I understand. The Preterist view, in my opinion, is a very weak view to hold to, but still it has some merit. Because indeed, if you look through the prophecy, for instance, in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, uh, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21, these are all prophecies given by Yeshua himself. Most of them were given right there on the Mount of Olives, and we call these the Olivet Discourse Prophecies, Matthew 24 uh, and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 17. Those are specifically Olivet Discourse Prophecies. Luke 21, however, gives us what we might call the Temple Discourse, where Yeshua is describing some events that are more related to the destruction of the Temple and less related to kind of the overall prophetic timetable. And in time, we'll look at this. We'll start doing this next week. But in time, we're going to find out that what Luke what Luke wrote down 
from the, the mouth of the master himself were details that probably very likely did take place in 70 AD. So it means from the Preter's perspective, a lot of Daniel's, I'm sorry, not, not a lot of Daniel, but a lot of Yeshua's predictive words about when you see the army surrounded Jerusalem, you need to flee, um, you need to take off, uh, don't go back and get your coat, pray that it's not going to be on Sabbath, pray that you're not pregnant as a woman, pray that it won't be in the winter and things like that. Um, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. A lot of those destructive uh, um, details that were given actually probably took place in 70 AD shortly after Yeshua explaining them to them. In other words, the near far aspect was more near at that time. But when we compare that part of the Bible, just Luke 21, I'm pulling this out of memory, right? I could get those swapped. It might be 13, that's the Temple Discourse, and 21, that's the Olivet Discourse, but I think it's the reverse. I think 13 of Luke is the uh, Olivet Discourse, and 21 is the Temple Discourse. I think that's what it is. But um, if all those details weren't fulfilled in 70 AD, if some of them are indeed for a future time that's still featured us in the 21st century here in 2023, then what we have is a, an application of a near and a far, right? Yeshua is describing things that took place near to those people right around the corner. They needed those words right then, and there are still future events. So let's look at this 70 weeks of Daniel through the perspective that I myself, this writer, this author, I'm the Bible teacher of this particular YouTube channel and this uh, podcast. This is my perspective and I'm not the only one who holds this perspective, but this is the futurist perspective with a little bit of help from the historicist and the preterist, meaning realizing that some of this did take place already and yet a lot of it is still future. So my perspective is that this 70th week of Daniel that we're looking at this chart and let's just look at some of the details first. We've got a seven-year period of one week, which equals seven years. Remember, Daniel talked about weeks and weeks, and he used the word weeks. And the original Hebrew and Aramaic um, can be translated as weeks, or could literally be translated as seven sevens. But the context is what drives, are we talking about seven days or seven weeks or seven years, right? We have to determine from context. And based on the, the way the events are laid out, we can safely ascertain even most preterists would agree that um, some of this has to be spread out over years. It couldn't be literal weeks. Even if parts of it were clumped together in short bursts and then parts of it are spread out over, like the historicists would say, um, kind of long, broad stretches. Like there, I know some Bible teachers, historicists, uh, who believe that we're actually right in the middle of, of the tribulation uh, with all of the persecution in the world today, with all of the uh, crazy weather that you see with all the political unrest um, and things like that. We just see that the the, the, the tribulations kind of spread out over long swath of like um, decades rather than clumped all together into a seven-year um, intense um, concentrated time frame. I myself am of the impression, just so you don't misunderstand, I'm of the impression that seven years is actually seven physical years of 360-day um, calendar days. In other words, the 360 prophetic days, according to the, their biblical days, they're not 365-day uh, years when we say seven, uh, seven years. So we can break this time period up, like you see on the chart, between three and a half years on one side and three and a half years on the other side. And let's look at some of the other details. In the chart, it says in the midst of the week, right? We read about that in Daniel 9, 27, in the middle of the week. That would cut right down the middle between the three and a half and three and a half. And then we can see that at the bottom of the chart, it talks about a covenant or a peace treaty that is made in Daniel 9, 27. At the very beginning of the seven-year period. In the middle, down at the bottom, bottom, you see the arrow right down there in the middle. 
uh, at the three and a half year mark, it says the covenant is broken. Daniel 9, 27, the abomination of desolation that Yeshua spoke of in Matthew 24, 15 takes place. And then according to this chart, we have the great tribulation on the last half of the 70th week, the last three and a half years, Matthew 24, 21, right? Three and a half years of the great tribulation. And then there's a verse down at the bottom is quoted from Yeshua again, after the tribulation of those days, Christ the Messiah will return, Matthew 24, 29 through 30. So using just this only, we could begin to talk about the idea of rapture. This is the kind of controversial topic in eschatological discussions. When is Jesus going to return? It's no secret that most Christians, but you'd be surprised to find out that not all, most Christians believe that Jesus' return is still future. There are some Christian groups and denominations who believe that Jesus has already returned, and that his return was a kind of a spiritual return. It wasn't the physical body bodily return. My understanding of, of, of Scripture and prophecy is that his return is literal, meaning just like his first coming was literal, he came to earth literally, physically, he occupied a human body, he took up real estate space on planet Earth at the time that he was here. He moved in and about humans and spoke and ate and slept uh, like all humans do. I believe that he's going to physically return once again in bodily form. Although the the second coming of Messiah, I believe, is covers um, not just one event, but multiple either events or multiple um, kind of time frames. Um, so we could say the initiation of his second coming would be what many Christians refer to as either the rapture or the resurrection. But his feet don't even touch the ground then. We meet him in the air. We read about that in, in the books of Second of uh, First and Second Thessalonians. Paul gives us those details. So Yeshua doesn't even need to touch planet Earth just yet. We meet him in the air. But as we find out from other prophecies, there are other details that take place either with the believers in heaven and or Yeshua returning to Earth, such as uh, Zechariah 14, where he comes down to the Mount of Olives, and his feet actually touch the Mount of Olives and split that thing in two from north to, to south, splits in, from the north and the south, and there's a big valley that flows between the two. Well, that's a physical uh, touching of planet Earth as opposed to meeting the Lord in the air. And then we also find that when we read about, we're going to read about this in um, certain Old Testament prophecies as well as in the book of Revelation in time, there's this battle that takes place near the very end of the age known as the Battle of Armageddon. And it's fought in the Middle East, um, probably in this valley that's about um, 60 miles north of Jerusalem, Har-Megiddo. Uh, it might be there, it might not be there. Um, at least the namesake is there, Har-Megiddo, Battle of, battle of Armageddon. The, the name Armageddon comes from Har-Megiddo. Har in Hebrew is Mount or hill. So Mount Megiddo or hill of Megiddo and the plains of Megiddo. You can do a Google search for Megiddo right now and it'll show you that it's a location. It's a valley in uh, in Israel, uh, like I said, about slightly northwest of Jerusalem or directly maybe north of Jerusalem. So um, uh, that battle, in that battle, the description there is that Yeshua is going to ride a white horse and fight against the Antichrist and Satan's armies that are going to do battle against God and, and his Messiah, right? We can read about this in Psalm chapter 2. We can read about this in, in, in um, uh, uh, certain Jeremiah passages, Ezekiel passages, um, Joel passages, um, uh, um, Revelation passages like 19 and 20 and things like that. And so what we're talking about is that that's still part of the second coming of Messiah. 
but it's not the same thing as the rapture. So that's my take on that aspect. But if you look at this chart with the little arrows that are pointing down, one at the very beginning of the 70th week, one in the middle of the 70th week, one at the very end, there are folks who hold to a view of rapture that we're going to see here known as post-tribulationism. And so let's turn now to some different rapture views and talk about that. This is another uh, chart that you can just Google search for. This one's put together by Revelation March Hi Mark Hitchcock. Uh, March Hitch Hitchcock would probably be the author's name. And so let's talk about these four views of the timing of the rapture. Within Daniel's 70 weeks, right? Look at that little line running along the very bottom of this chart. You have the set, it's called Daniel's, I'm sorry, this, this chart calls it seven years of tribulation. Remember the previous chart, let me jump back over there for a split second. It calls the Great Tribulation as just the three and a half years. Is it saying that the whole tribulation is seven years long? Well, maybe, maybe not. Many Christians are of the impression that the tribulation is seven years long. Some Christians don't believe it's the full seven years. Some believe that the first half of that seven-year period is some type of trouble and distress, but it's not necessarily the tribulation. The last three and a half years is what's called the Great Tribulation, according to that previous chart. This chart says it's the whole seven-year tribulation. doesn't say anything about the total Great Tribulation, but I'm of the impression that it's more closely um, the previous chart, that the Great Tribulation is the final three and a half years, and more specifically, um, the wrath of God is the, even the final maybe half of that three and a half year mark. But in conclusion to, to this um, sneak preview tonight, let's just break down this particular chart and use this to, again to whet our appetite. We could ask the question, when is the rapture? When is the second coming of Messiah? And is there even a rapture? I'm of the impression and understanding that there is a rapture, but it's not secret. So it's popular and vogue in today's Christian circles to throw this idea of rapture under the bus because of the talk of it being secret. Like as in, imminently suddenly without warning without any um precursor without any uh expectation um suddenly millions and billions of people are going to disappear from planet earth in the blink of an eye and no one's going to know what happened and it'll be completely secret no one will have any, had any warning no signs no anything i find a few problems with that perspective number one i want you to know first and foremost and i don't want anyone to misunderstand me on this on what i'm about to say next there is absolutely a rapture. We can call it the resurrection if you want. We can call it the snatching away, the harpazo, which is the Greek term. The rapture is borrowed from the Latin term raptura or rapture, something like that. It's the English version, rapture. But there absolutely is what Paul terms in, terms in, his, in his letters to the Thessalonians, a blessed hope where we who are either alive or those who died before Christ comes back, doesn't matter, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the great resurrection, this is our blessed hope. And that time frame, that time period, that event is not going to be secret. It will be heralded around the world by cosmic disturbances and or signs. So the disciples in Matthew 24 asked Yeshua, when will be, and they asked two aspects, when will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The sign of your coming, that's the rapture, and of the end of the age. So there are two aspects that we're going to be looking at in time. Let's look at this chart. The rapture, according to these four views, there's what's called the pre-trib, meaning 
pre-tribulation rapture as any rapture that takes place prior to the tribulation that's going to hit planet earth for the seven years and the top chart the top we're looking at the left side of the, your chart here pre-trib those folks who believe that they're not going to go through any tribulation as a christian that jesus is going to suddenly and eminently rescue them from any tribulation and they're not going to have to go through anything uh that's one perspective it's a very popular view and it might even be the majority view in uh, evangelical Christianity today. But moving down the chart, we have what's known as the mid-trib view, where if you look at the yellow circle known as the rapture, this places the rapture sometime in the middle, in fact, in fact, sometime right smack dab in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. See the bottom of the chart there, seven-year tribulation? So meaning, if the tribulation is seven years long, according to the mid-tribbers, you're gonna have to go through three and a half years of bad stuff. But have no fear, Jesus is going to rapture you three and a half years into it. And then we'll talk about the wrath of God here in a moment. The pre-wrath view, which is the third down from on the list on the left, it doesn't have the rapture yellow circle in the, at the middle, at the beginning or in the middle, but it's closer to the middle. It's just a little farther to the right side. It has this pink section called wrath of Satan. And then you have the red, yellow uh, circle called rapture. And then the gray arrow pointing to the right called wrath of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then finally, the bottom uh, view on the list called post-trib doesn't even have the rapture at the beginning. It's the exact complete opposite, mirror opposite of the pre-trib at the very top. It takes that yellow circle and pushes it all the way to the far right, meaning you go through all of the seven years of tribulation and the wrath of God, and then God raptures you or Jesus raptures you. Raptures you. On the far right of the chart, as you can see, there's this big gray section called millennium. That is what we... what um, many Bible prophecy students and uh, teachers call the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. Some people believe in a literal thousand-year time. Some people believe that's just figurative or allegorical or a spiritual thousand years. There's not a physical thousand years. Let me tell you what my perspective is in closing for this um, section tonight. I fall into the section known as pre-wrath on this chart, the third down. I believe that there is a seven-year literal time period that we will still experience on planet Earth one day. I don't believe the entire seven years is, is labeled the tribulation, but I do believe the entire seven years will be marked by tumultuous times. There will be persecutions, there will be suffering, there will be plagues, there will be unnatural um, uh, disasters that take place on Earth and in the skies. So there will be a lot of of um shaking a lot of, a whole lot of shaking going on on planet earth and in people's hearts and in their spirits and there'll be a lot of demonic activity and such taking place during that time period but i don't label the entire thing the tribulation more more exactly we'll find out in in, in subsequent teachings the first three and a half years is, is more labeled what we might call the um birth pangs um uh what jesus himself called the birth pangs um as if the birth the baby giving birth is maybe near the very end of the time time frame or maybe the rapture itself might be the be the baby uh depending on what view you take but i take pre-wrath pre-wrath the important part to walk away with in the perspective that i hold to is that the um the tribulation is something that we believers will go through because there will be distress on planet earth and we will go through the pink period known as the wrath of satan where Satan has been given a short space by God himself to just 
go out and persecute Christians, to actually make war with the saints and to overcome them. This is language you find both in the Old Testament prophecies, such as Daniel, as well as in um, John's revelations, like uh, right in the middle, right around chapter 12 of Revelation, we talks about uh, the devil making war with the saints, chapter 13 as well. So I believe we are going to go through some suffering, but it will primarily be suffering caused by either wicked mankind not repenting or and or the wrath of, in other words, the birth pangs and or specifically the suffering that Satan pours out on believers and the nation of Israel in in uh, specifically. Uh, that's the wrath of Satan. He's going to persecute the entire world, but for the most part, his focal point is on those who have a commitment to either God, to Yeshua, or some connection or commitment to Israel as a people group. Because his, his intense hatred, when I say his, I mean Satan, but it's going to be using the Antichrist, the false Messiah, um, and, and other elements that we find in the book of Revelation, but it's all being driven by Satan. Satan hates God, Satan hates Messiah, but Satan also hates the Jewish people, who are God's physical um, uh, body and covenant people, even if the spiritual covenant people are the body Messiah, the Christians, the Gentile Christians. But from Satan's perspective, the hatred is for both. He hates Jews and he hates Christians as well. The people he doesn't really hate are those who uh, um, uh, give their allegiance to him and worship him and worship the mark of the beast. He's going to, for the most part, not be as, as uh, persecuting of those people. But Pre-Wrath says we're going to go through the wrath of Satan. We're going to go through some pretty nasty stuff when we begin to read about this in, in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be raptured out of the devil's persecution. His persecution is going to be cut short. The wrath of Satan is going to be cut short by that yellow circle known as the rapture of Messiah, the second coming. And then what will be left on planet Earth will be for the wrath of God to be poured out upon Satan's kingdom and upon all those who refuse to believe that Jesus is the true Messiah and um, uh save their very souls from uh, the wrath that's going to be poured out upon all of wicked mankind. So God is going to judge not just Satan and his kingdom and all of the wickedness, you know, all the demonic powers that are in, at, at present in the world today, all of the false religions, all of the uh, the false ideologies and theologies and philosophies and all that other nonsense, but God is going to judge the entire world because they have rejected Messiah and God wholesale. They've rejected the word of truth, God's word. They've rejected the Holy Spirit. They said no uh, to the author of life. They, they would be more willing to take the mark and save their own skin than to um, save their very soul from damnation. So for that reason, God has to pour his wrath out on, upon wicked mankind. And the um, termination of that wrath, where you see the arrow coming to an end, would be the time period of Armageddon, uh, the end of the 70th week, the end of the times of the Gentiles, the bringing in of, we're going to have to talk about what happens to unsaved Israel at the time. Where is she in this whole picture? I'm not going to tell you just right now. We'll, we'll talk about that in time. But for now, here's the overview, a preview, a snapshot, a trailer of what some of the events are going to be talking about in the book of Revelation. But in closing, this study is not going to be all about the rapture. Okay, so there are a lot of other end-time events that we have to uh, discuss. Um, talking about where Israel's salvation fits into the picture, that's, and that's not dealing with the rapture. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the campaigns about of, 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 of um, surrounding a, of Israel by certain armies um, when we get to the book of Revelation and using the Old Testament as our uh, backdrop. Um, and then also uh, an extremely important yet um, confusing uh, discussion will take place farther on down into my study where we're going to 
take at least two weeks or longer where we're going to try to ascertain who or what is Mystery Babylon or Babylon the Great, the Mystery Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and why that should matter to us. Because there are many views that put uh, Revelation 17 and 18 as referring to some end-time city such as uh, uh, Rome or the Vatican City or Mecca or uh, Dubai or um, uh, Qatar or um, Abu Dubai, Abu Dubai, or some great big city, a modern city, could be Jerusalem, could be a rebuilt Babylon, could be New York, could be Sydney, Australia, could be a London, right? Uh, a, a, a great city could be Singapore, could be um, uh, uh, Hong Kong, right? Because it's described as a seaport in Revelation chapter eighteen. Um, you know, so we're trying. We're going to try. We're kind of trying to ascertain. What details are given to us in the Bible that can help us come to a better understanding of who might we be dealing with and why? On the one hand, it doesn't really matter, right? Because according to most of these draft reviews, it won't affect us who this uh, who this mystery Babylon is. But to some extent, it should matter to us because number one, it's a part of Bible, and number two, it also helps us to better uh, gain an appreciation and understanding of the, the Book of Revelation as a whole if we can understand some of the power base structure of of where satan's going to be doing a lot of these things and how it affects israel and how it can help us um pray for friends and family members who are not just um here in the in the countries that we live in but perhaps maybe we have friends and family members who live in the middle east or europe or turkey or um uh you know believers that live in saudi arabia and things like that they're going to be going through a much harder time because they're they're going to be closer to the epicenter of these events anyway. So that'll do it for um, eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. If you can do so, stick around for the next thirty minutes uh, es- um, apologetic section where we're going to be talking about trinitarian versus biblicalitarian uh, unit uh, beliefs. Okay. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetor.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, You can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around, and um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzator Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic, uh, 
every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in it's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well too. I mean, uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to um, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism and take the next 30 minutes or even less to talk about certain Bible passages that Trinitarians typically believe are discussing a Trinitarian perspective of God, triune God, triune nature. And yet, Biblical Unitarianism, uh, a non-Trinitarian denomination of Christianity, says, no, you've actually been misunderstanding those passages. Here's what they truly mean. Um, here's what they really mean. And um, uh, here's a better way to understand these passages. What we've been utilizing is BiblicalUnitarianisms.com's website, uh, they've got a cluster of probably maybe 30 or 40 different passages from the Bible that are normally associated with Trinitarian understanding, but they're providing 
a, a biblical Unitarian perspective. We're now on the third passage of their list, Genesis 11, verse 7. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1, 26, where God said, let us make man in our image. Go back and listen to last week's study from my uh, iTunes podcast or my YouTube channel. And we ascertained there that what's entirely more likely using the Bible as our cue is that the us and our of those passages is God taking counsel within himself as a as a complex unity. One God, three persons, three separate persons. The person of the Father speaking with the Son. The person of the Son responding to the Father. The person of the Holy Spirit responding to the other two. They were having this discussion with one another. There's no need to suppose that God was having this discussion with the heavenly council, even though he does, at times in other places of the Bible, have discussions with the heavenly council. There's certainly certainly no need to to think that God was having this discussion with the angels, even though at other times he not only dialogues with the angels, he actually commands his angels to go out and do certain things. The key to the understanding that passage in Genesis 1.26 is that the verbs are driving the passage. God says, let us make man in verse 26. And then in verse 27, it says, so God created. And so those two verbs taken together, make and created two different verbs, but driving the same event, God alone has the power to create man. Angels cannot create, and neither can the um, heavenly council that God confers with like the 24 elders around the throne, or the four living creatures, or any of the seraphim or cherubim, or any of those creatures in heaven, none of them are ever given in the Bible either creative powers, nor do we have any Bible verses that say that they, that we as humans are created in their image, right? Because God says, let us create man in our image, right? The We aren't created in the image of angels. We're not created in the image of the four living creatures or created in the, Im- in the image of the, of the, um, the 24 elders or anything like that. Although we don't know exactly what they look like, we have some hints. But the point I'm trying to make is that the word image in Hebrew, the tselem in the, in the Hebrew, the word image in, in English carries a little bit more than just um, a head, two arms, and two legs. There's a lot more to humans that shows that the image that we carry uh, that God created us with also includes a measured amount of um, moral um, capacity to make decisions based on right and wrong, um, the uh, knowledge of good and evil, the responsibility for our actions. Um, and the ability to, and this is a very important part of the image that we're creating God, the ability to praise God with our heart, with our mind, with our mouth, with our, with our very actions. These are things that animals can't do, for instance, right? Animals can't praise God with their mouth, with their, with their arms. They can't uplift their arms and praise God. Uh, The trees and the rocks can't do that, even though metaphorically they're given those descriptors in the books of Psalms and other prophecies or uh, 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 prophets. You know, let the let the earth shout for joy. Let the, let the trees sh- spring forth with song. Let the waves roar in in and announce. Let the mountains break forth in song. That's all poetic, right? We know that it literally isn't happening, but we as humans can. It's because we, like God, have the um, capacity to express praise and worship with our mouth and with our faculties. Something that God also has the ability to do but something that animals and plants and trees and other elements in the earth don't have. So created in the image of God and created and made, those are things that God exclusively has the power to do. So that carries right over into this passage where it's quoted as 
Um, Genesis 11, 7, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. This is the familiar story of the Tower of Babel being built by a group of men who were defying God's command to, to be fruitful and spread out across the earth and multiply. Instead, what mankind was doing by this time in the book of Genesis is he was clustering and clumping together, and instead of um, populating the rest of, of the earth, he was coming together to build himself a city, to build himself a tower that reached unto the heavens, to um, make a name for himself uh, so that he would not be spread out across the entire earth. And according to God's reckoning, because man had the, all the same speech um, and he could all communicate with one another, God supposed that left unchecked, mankind would actually be able to do what he'd set out to accomplish, meaning he would build a tower that reached into the very heavens and he would actually build a, a, a great city. We know actually also that in time that that part of the world became kind of the cradle of civilization. We're talking about the Valley of Shinar or Shinar, if you want to pronounce it that way, um, in the part of the uh, earth that today we would recognize as um, Mesopotamia, um, a little, just a little east of Saudi Arabia, um, modern day, I believe it's, um, Iraq. I could be Iran, but I think it's Iraq. I have to pull up a map to look. I'm drawing a blank off the top of my head, but it's, it's east of, um, Israel, um, and east of Saudi Arabia. And it's a little, it's right where the, um, mouth of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, uh, and where the mouth of the Gulf of, Gulf of Arabia, uh, the, um, the Persian Gulf right there at the mouth there, um, that, that landmass there where, um, the, the Tigris river and the Euphrates river, uh, start to branch out that area of land, uh, the land of Ur, the land of, of the Chaldees, the land of, um, Babylon, the land of Nineveh, the land of, of those ancient lands. Um, all of that is the place that, that that's being described here. And guess what? If you've been following my, um, prophecy study uh, in the first segment, we're going to be talking about that about how that's the birthplace of Babylon as well, the bit of where Babylonianism uh, has its um, birth and origins and how that plays an important part for us to understand end-time prophecies. But for this part here in, in um, our Trinitarian versus Biblical Unitarian study, according to Biblical Unitarianism, they go on to say that for an explanation applicable to this verse, see the note on Genesis 1.26, which is why I took the extra time to talk about Genesis 1.26 again. They don't give you an explanation for the, why God says us and our. If you recall from last week, they basically say that God is conferring with his counsel and we have proof from other um, ancient Canaanite and Mesopotamian texts where gods refer with their, confer with their counsels. And so what biblical Unitarian does is they conveniently ignore the, the uh, biblical records that we have that are already given to us later on in the Bible where we know without doubt explicitly that Jesus i.e. the word made flesh, is given creative um, ownership and creative powers and assignment, not just in agency fashion that God created everything through him. That's true, but he's given direct creative, um, uh, uh, um, not just responsibility, but uh, um, it's designation because he is one with God. He's not just with God, but he is one with God in very nature. Um, all creation recognizes that nothing can exist without him, which means he is not part of the created order. He's outside of creation himself. He didn't create himself. 
if we read the verses in their most natural sense, he's not merely the agent that cre- that God created everything through. He himself is uncreated. And this is what differentiates the Trinitarian perspective from those biblical views that believe that Jesus is a creature, such as the Jehovah's Witness perspective. So this is all biblical Unitarian has to supply here. They say the us is a reference to God and the heavenly council, I guess, going down to confuse their languages. So God and a bunch of angels um, traipsed down to earth and took a look and decided to confuse everything. But we've already seen that basically we're talking about theophanies and Christophanies, where God in the being form speaks to one of the other persons, maybe father speaks to the son, and either the father himself goes down and we have a theophany, like the angel of the Lord, or we have the, the overlap of what we might call a Christophany, where the angel of the Lord or the 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 the, the um uh, um the uh captain of heaven's armies is really a picture of the pre-incarnate Yeshua, meaning the word made flesh before he took on flesh known as Jesus. He's taking on um, a theophany or Christophany. He's breaking into the natural from the supernatural invisible realm into the natural visible realm. And he goes down, right? It's anthropomorphic language. He goes from heaven down to earth and takes a look at what mankind's doing. There isn't even really in the the, uh, passage anything that needs to have God physically go from heaven to earth. It's more just anthropomorphic describing God vantage point in heaven above earth where he says let us go down but later on in the passage we don't have any description as i remember about the angel of the lord or something like that like um like we read in maybe the burning bush experiences where you know people actually interact with a supernatural being on a, on a physical level um you know angel of the lord or uh the, the, the captain of heaven's armies that Joshua encountered, things like that. But either way, it's better if we just realize that we're dealing with a complex God who describes himself in plurality because from his vantage point, he knows that the three persons are all one God. Even if we can't fully understand it, at least we've been given that revelation later on in Scripture. And it's always best to let Scripture interpret Scripture like we learned in our first uh, session, Right. Why in the world would you want to turn to ancient Canaanite and Mesopotamian documents to interpret scripture? You can use that as a historical prop up to uh, to say maybe um, uh, give a second witness or maybe what may I say? Well, there's a coincidence here that we can see uh, historically takes place in scripture and also historically takes place outside of scripture. That's, that's fine, but you don't want that that secondary resource, that outside resource to be the final authority. You don't want to say, well, because it says in Canaanite literature, that's proof that God is not Trinity. That's absurd, people. And we also talked about how they always want to let New Testament texts speak to Old Testament texts, and you want to let Old Testament texts speak to New Testament texts. You want to let the, the Bible speak to the Bible. That's the best way to understand the Bible, because it's all authoritative. You're dealing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in both cases, and you're better um, uh, uh, equipped to understand whichever segment you have a question on, because it's the Holy Spirit who authored both segments. Omain, Omain. Having said that, however, let's turn this week to a, uh, a blog that I encountered, this written to get the written by a biblical Trinitarian, 
And but he's a um he has a a a decidedly philosophical uh, bend to his writings, which I have always appreciated because I'm a student of philosophy and psychology. Uh, this particular gen- writer has a, a degree in psychology, and my degree is in I'm sorry he has a degree in philosophy, but my degree is in psychology. But he's going to talk about how the name of his blog, this label, you can see my screen, how Unitarians argue like atheists. I find this blog particularly interesting because it begins to help us get into the mindset of why some non-Trinitarians think in a direction that's contrary to Trinitarian theology. Like, it's always puzzled me, why wouldn't a biblical student read the entire Bible, right, Old and New Testaments, including all the the monotheistic passages out of the Old Testament and the Trinitarian passages out of the New Testament. And why wouldn't he come to the conclusion that, oh, God is Trinity? There's three going on here, right? Um, because there's, there's quite a number of triadic passages. Why don't more people have a more Trinitarian-leaning um, hermeneutic or mindset? And part of it, I've ascertained, is because often, without knowing it, we enter into this sort of skeptical um, perspective where we're distrusting of what we read, where we begin to question it in an unhealthy way. Sometimes questioning is good because we're seeking to understand and find answers. And so we we question because we don't know the answer, but we're seeking to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. And when he does, even if it's challenging, we always let Scripture stand in judgment of us rather than the other way around, right? That's a bad hermeneutic when you stand in judgment over Scripture. You always want Scripture to stand in judgment of you. So if I read passage A and it teaches me one thing, and then I read passage B in another part of the Bible, and it seems to be pulling in an opposite direction, well, then I am the one who has the misunderstanding. I'm of the understanding that the Bible cannot and does not contradict itself. God doesn't contradict himself between the A and the B passages. Instead, often there are simply what we might call information limitation or a macro where it's merely an apparent contradiction resulting from unarticulated equivocation, meaning there are details that are left out that I'm not seeing. Um, there's slight ambiguity based on lack of given details. But either way, God is not contradicting himself. It's simply slightly ambiguous um, to me or confusing to me simply because I'm not seeing the, the total picture. I'm not seeing all of the angles. And so what I need to do is pray and press in and continue to search and seek and allow God to reveal things to me. But until then, I hold that those A and B passages in tension with one another, but I don't come to the conclusion that B contradicts A or that A contradicts B or God forbid A is accurate and B is inaccurate or vice versa. B is accurate and A is is inaccurate. But when I read through Trinitarian understandings and, and explanations of passages, I almost get the impression, and I'm not saying that they are doing this, I'm giving some benefit to the doubt because I've not had direct dialogue extensively with Unitarian Christians, but I almost get the impression many times that they find a Trinitarian-leaning passage in the New Testament, and they're inclined to believe that no that's wrong or it can't be trusted, it's not trustworthy, it's been tampered with, it's been corrupted by uh, human authors or copyists or translators or translations, or God would never say that because he already told us in 
passage A that he's a Unitarian, that he's that he's a single God, and that there are only one person, or something like that. In other words, they don't even entertain sometimes the possibility that they could be wrong as a biblical Unitarian, and and that the passage that's being explained in question in the B section or the New Testament is accurate, and that we Trinitarians got it right. It's almost like nope, they're they're, they're just bent on 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 the reality that we Trinitarians are absolutely stone cold wrong, whereas. My perspective as a Trinitarian is that I can actually harmonize many of the monotheistic passages in the Old Testament with the Trinitarian passages of the New Testament. They harmonize with one another. Why? Because of progressive revelation, because of mystery of God, because of God hiding things purposely in earlier texts for the purpose of revealing them in later texts to serve God's purpose and God's glory. Okay? That's why I can harmonize what appears to be a Unitarian God in the Old Testament, but is in reality a Trinitarian God in the New Testament. And then I can retroactively realize that those seemingly Unitarian passages in the Old Testament are actually Trinitarian underneath. I'm just not seeing the whole picture. It's information limitation, or it's a macro. Like I said, merely an apparent contradiction resulting from unarticulated equivocation. So let's look at this blog. I'm going to read most of it, <clears throat> and I'm going to read most of it without stopping because I think it's self-explanatory if my voice doesn't give out on me. <clears throat> so it's called, How Unitarians Argue Like Atheists. This is a little bit disturbing because in the model that we're about to see, atheists are those people who often take biblical passages that would appear to most Christians as clearly describing a God who is and exists and that loves them and wants to enter into a loving relationship with them. It takes those passages and instead takes kind of the default position of doubt and skepticism and allows that default assumption to drive their understanding and perception of the Bible and passages that they read. So that instead of starting from, well, maybe God exists, let me allow the Bible to prove it, they actually start from the assumption that, no, God doesn't exist and let me show you how the Bible proves that he doesn't. <clears throat> or let me show you how other details prove that he doesn't. <clears throat> so let's read the um, parts of this blog. I don't know how much I'll read. We'll read until I get to a certain point, a stopping point. How Unitarians Argue Like Atheists. Here's what the blog has to say. The, Trini the Unitarians I respond to on this blog, this is the author's perspective. The Unitarians I respond to on this blog call themselves Biblical Unitarians. He's got the word biblical in quotes. They believe in God. They say they believe in the Bible. They believe in miracles, the resurrection, life after death. So how are they like atheists who deny all these things? I've alluded to this in the past, but thought it worth a post on its own. Continuing. Atheists really like, quote, reason, unquote, and logic, quote, unquote. Now, I put scare quotes around those words because for all of the talk about reason and logic, you get from atheists, it isn't logic or reason they actually use and appeal to. More on that later. But what they like to do is like, I'm sorry, is make claims about what is logical, argue that what Christians believe doesn't match that and is therefore illogical, and their favorite type of argument is to make follows a certain pattern. What the, the argument they like that they like to make follows a certain pattern. So let's look at this pattern that he's first going to describe from the atheist perspective. And then I believe what he's going to do is he's going to overlay the 
biblical Unitarian or non-Trinitarian perspective and see if there are some similarities that should be a bit disturbing to any biblical Unitarians who are listening to this who do not like to be, um, say, associated with atheists, right? There's a reason why his blog is meant to disturb you a bit. Okay, so just listen up. This, I don't believe, is a wholesale, um, say, um, throwing under the bus or uh, indictment against biblical Unitarianism per se. I think what the author is trying to do is to shock people, shock non-Trinitarians into the semblance of reality that, hey, if you've got the Bible already giving you enough information to um, uh, lead you to the understanding that God is more than just one singular person, right? He's more than just a, uh, a what the what do the non-Trinitarians call him? A, um, a, um, numerically one person, um, then why wouldn't you come to the conclusion that we Trinitarians already come to? So here's what this author of this blog has to say. Um, when we get to the end of this, by the way, I'll tell you who the author, author is. Uh, off the top of my head, I, I'm drawing a blank. Um, so maybe his name will show up down at the very bottom. The arguments very often, again, first let's describe the uh, the argument from a atheist perspective. Here's that atheist ex- argument, point one, two, and three. Here's what they often look like. Point one, if God exists, notice the if. Notice the skeptical starting point, if, right? If God exists, then the world would look like X, i.e. no evil, less evil, believe in Jesus, blazoned on the moon, personal revelation, miracles for everyone, and so on and so on, right? So that's kind of the starting point. If God exists, then shouldn't we expect X and X is filled in with all copious amounts of suppositions where if God truly did exist, then why do we have so much suffering? If God truly did exist, why are there why is there so much hunger and sickness in the world, disease and you know, confusion and blah blah blah? If Jesus truly is the only way, the truth and life, and and the only way to achieve salvation, then why isn't believe it believe in Jesus and blazing down the moon, blah blah blah? Okay, so that's the starting point of skepticism from the atheist perspective. Number two. The world does not look like X, fill in the blank, right? In other words, take a look around you. If God did exist, and if Jesus was the the only way to God, then the world should look like X. But point number two, because the world doesn't, then three, conclusion, therefore God doesn't exist. Now, this structure, by the way, where we have point one, point two, and point three, is known in logical circles as syllogism or... um, um, uh, predicate one, predicate two, predicate two and um, uh, conclusion three. So we have point one, point two leading to a conclusion. Um, predicate, we call this predicate logic. Uh, so um, again, this is a, a, just a basic form of what we call syllogism, where two points lead to the conclusion. If point one is accurate, and if point two is accurate, then point three must also be accurate because it's the conclusion of the logical inference drawn from points one and two. All right, so this is what a skeptic might look at, an atheist might look at if he were having a discussion about why he believes that God doesn't exist. All right, listen to this author's explanation. There really is no end to the number of hypothetical conditions the atheist can come up with as logical criteria for the existence of God. So what is wrong with this type of argument? Remember, we're having a discussion about why biblical Unitarians choose not to believe 
all of the data that's supplied for us in the Bible that should lead us to conclusion that God is a tripart God, that he's not three gods, but that he's one God, but he's complex in his unity, such as that we can be, describe him in terms of three persons. Even though the word person doesn't show up in the Bible, we, sub, we insert a word that helps us relate with God on our level because we as individuals are persons. We share and enjoy personhood and we describe it using various um, realities that we interact with with one another, like person A, person B. And when we look at the Bible, we in, we notice that there are three distinct um, realities that we have to deal with in certain parts of the Bible that would lead us to the conclusion that it's one God, and yet it's a bit challenging that there's three you can fill in the blank if you don't like the word persons, but three somethings going on there as well. But it's not three gods, right? So let's continue. This author says, basically, and remember, he's a Trinitarian, and he's trying to philosophically ascertain why biblical Unitarians shouldn't come to some of the same conclusions that we Trinitarians do. Basically, and this is his opinion, he says, the problem is that it isn't an argument based on any actual evidence for the atheist position. It's an argument based on the lack of some special kind of evidence that the atheist has predetermined is the kind of evidence necessary to prove God's existence from the atheist perspective. Are you following what I'm saying? So it's not that we have a have it's not that um atheists say, well, I mean, look at the microscope, look at the look at the universe, look at the signature of God all over the place. It's not that the atheist is really ignoring all those things. In some cases it is. We we, um, those of us who do believe that there is a God, we often point to so many arguments in proof of, of God, right? We have what's called the cosmological argument, where we look at the heavens and, and, and the universe, and we say there's no way that everything could exist the way it does in such an orderly way if there wasn't a, uh, an intelligent creator that put all this stuff together, or at least is overseeing it. Um, we also look at the, uh, the origin of the universe, right? How could everything have originated without a creator? Where did the Big Bang come from, right? Who who caused the Big Bang to come into place? Where where did all the source material originate from, right? Um, something couldn't have just come out of nothing is what scientists are trying to um, uh, say. And then we have all kinds of other arguments, right? The arguments from science, the argument from, from medicine, the argument from um, nature, right? Where we look at all the order in the human body, all the order in nature, all of the um, uh, ways that there are um, signatures down, right down to the very DNA level of structure and of, of order and organization. We have order itself in, in logical um, pictures such as things that man creates, right? Um, if you go to the store and pick up a Rolex watch, right, a fine um, uh, expensive timepiece, right? I'm just using Rolex as an example. There are other watches I could have picked, but let's just pick up Rolex, for example. If you take this Rolex apart, you would find that there is intricate order inside that watch, right? Detailed movement and precision that can only be attributed to intelligent um, creation, meaning uh, uh, humans who are very smart put this thing together. There's no way it could have simply evolved is the point I'm trying to make, right? It, there's no way it could have come to come to be on its own, right? The, the very movements and the and the precision of this 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 instrument, this Rolex watch, it just screams that I was manufactured by an intelligent mind. Well, the same thing happens with everything around us, right? So those are arguments that we're saying the atheist doesn't really always 
say ignore. Um, rather, he instead inserts his own, say, argument based on silence or based on lack of of um, detail. Hey, if if God really exists, then why doesn't this condition exist? Or if God truly exists, why isn't there universal peace on earth? And blah blah blah. It's similar to the way um, uh, unbelieving Jews argue against Jesus being the Messiah. Quite often, you guys have probably heard this. Quite often, one of the reasons unbelieving Jews reject Jesus as the candidate for Messiah is they say because if Jesus was really the Prince of Peace, like you Christians say, then how come there's no peace on earth? Right? How come there's no peace in the Middle East? If Jesus is your Prince of Peace, who's supposed to bring peace to everyone, how come there's no universal love yet? Right? How come Israel's still suffering under her uh, oppressors and 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 with all the, the the violence in the Middle East and blah blah blah? You know, how come there's all of this and all of that? The argument from the doubter and the skeptic and the atheist is similar to the argument from the non-Trinitarian is what the uh, this author is trying to um, talk about. So the argument's also, he says, not, I'm sorry, let me back up. It's an argument based on the lack of some special kind of evidence that the atheists have predetermined is the kind of evidence necessary to prove God exists. How incredibly convenient. He continues, the argument is also not an argument from logic in any way, since the person simply declaring what kind of evidence counts isn't the same thing as employing logic. In other words, it all becomes personal. It all becomes his own, um, uh, what we might call, um, uh, not objective uh, viewpoint, but his own subjective viewpoint. Let's continue. To make the argument that your opponent is being illogical is a, is a specific type of argument. It's called an internal a critique or a reductio ad absurdum, ad absurdum, whatever you call it. I may have butchered butcher the Latin there, but whatever you call it, it is an argument that there is some kind of internal inconsistency within the set of beliefs you are calling illogical. This author continues. Now, if someone wants to show a set of beliefs to be illogical, one pretty important rule is that they have to limit themselves to talking about those beliefs. It's pretty straightforward, but missed a lot. If the atheist says Christianity is illogical, then his case cannot be based on an argument that has to utilize premises that Christians don't believe. He can't, in other words, then he gives an example when he says premises. For instance, in our example above, in our syllogism of 1, 2, and 3, point 1 and 2 are the premises, and point 3 is the conclusion. For instance, listen to the premise. It could be premise 1 or 2. Premise says, he can't say if God exists, he would give everyone personal proof. Since he hasn't, your beliefs are illogical. You can't go in that direction, even though you'd like to, because these are all um, uh, subjective arguments, and you're not actually arguing against things that Christians don't believe. Christians don't believe that God should give everyone um, their own personal proof, such as the skeptic might think. Christians that I know of don't say, we do believe in God, and the proof that we believe in God is that God has told everyone that he is real, that he gives them all their own personal proof. In fact, it's often to our, to we believers, to, to our disappointment, it's actually quite the opposite sometimes. Lord, why don't you reveal yourself more to other people? I have plenty of unsaved uh, friends, family members, loved ones that I wish God would reveal himself to them. He doesn't give them personal proof of his existence. So I'm painfully aware of the exact opposite. So I'm not arguing from the atheist perspective that if God exists, he'd give everyone personal proof. In other words, what this author of this blog is pointing out is that this is an illogical argument because it doesn't use premises that Christians believe. 
uses premises that Christians don't believe. So he continues, that doesn't work for the simple reason that the Christian rejects the first premise, right? We don't argue that God should give everybody personal proof of his own existence. It would be nice, but we're not making that argument. The atheist is imposing, rather, his own non-Christian criteria on Christians and calling them illogical for not conforming to it. Does that make sense? So the atheist is saying, I've got a problem. Your God doesn't reveal himself to everybody, and therefore I don't believe in him. But in reality, that's not a Christian Christian um, deficiency. That's the atheist deficiency. That's his own baggage. That's his own um, uh, uh, um, uh, illogical uh, argument that he needs to take up with God himself. That's the point this this uh, this blog this blogger is making. The atheist is imposing his own non-Christian criteria on Christians and calling those Christians illogical, illogical for not conforming to it. If the atheist wants to show the Christian is illogical, then what the atheist needs to do is to limit himself to analyzing what Christians actually believe. That's when the argument becomes logical and becomes factual and becomes relevant. So he says, how does all this relate to Unitarians? First, Unitarians love to appeal to logic to show that Trinitarians are wrong, right? There's a whole argument out there on the internet land known as the illogical, the um, logical problem of the Trinity. You can Google search that phrase, the logical problem of the Trinity. It boils down to this. How can God be three if God is one? And how could God be one if Trinitarians say he's three? So it's the math problem, right? It's illogical to people who are non-Trinitarians, right? Are you talking about one God? Are you talking about a God who's broken up into three parts? Are you talking about three, a three-headed God? Are you talking about three total separate gods? What's the deal? So that's what we call the logical problem of the Trinity. Uh, John Shane Height's website, Biblical Unitarian, he's the gentleman that we've been in- interacting with. Let me just pop over and show you his website again. Biblical Unitarianism is, I don't know if it's if he created the site, but he's certainly one of the primary contributors. So I'll flash a little picture in post-production of him on the screen where you can see him. John Shane Height or Sh- Shane It. I've still yet to know exactly how to pronounce his name. Um, I'm of the impression it's Shane Height. But his website, Biblical Unitarian, has an entire heading under its articles sections called Logic. Some of the titles of articles here are Equivocation, The Art of Changing the Rules in the Middle of the Game. Uh, another title, Mystery versus Contradiction. And yet another title, Basic Laws of Thought. And finally, a fourth title, Logical Fallacies Employed in Trinitarian Logic. You get the idea. All right. Sean Finnegan, in his debate with Brant Bosterman, said, uh, these are, this is a Trinitarian versus Unitarian debaters, said that he thinks logic is a very important tool God has given to us to know the truth, and we shouldn't downplay it. He says, quote, I think reason, this is a quote from Finnegan, uh, I think reason is this beautiful gift God has given to us, uh, given us to sort out everything we do in life. And if you're reading this blog, you can actually click on the video link uh, to listen to that quote from Sean Finnegan. This blogger continues. He states that the Trinitarian definition of God is, quote, is not paradoxical but contradictory. Again, a link to the video. End quote. Virtually any time you see a Unitarian explaining or arguing against Trinity, listen to this very, very, very carefully. Virtually any time you see a Unitarian arguing or explaining against Trinity, you can count on them at some point describing Trinitarian belief as illogical, irrational, ridiculous, or some such synonym. Like the atheist, this blogger continues, like the atheist, the Unitarian will not actually formulate an argument that supports this claim. 
Finnegan's debate performance is a good example of this. When he, in his opening statement, attempts to formulate an argument that the Trinity is illogical, he describes what many Trinitarians believe, that there are three persons who are distinct, yet are each fully God. He says that when someone uses this term, he has, quote, defined himself out of a definition, end quote, and that Trinitarians who use that terminology have, quote, crossed their eyes mentally and gone into mystery land, end quote. At no point does he, and this is the, that's the end of the quote, this author continues here, this blogger, at no point does he actually offer an argument for these statements. And if he thinks he did, he certainly didn't offer one based on what Trinitarians believe. He just finds the Trinitarian, the Trinity to not fit with his own philosophical conclusions and thinks that that's the same as the Trinity being illogical. Let's keep reading because we're almost done. Let's see, one paragraph, two paragraphs, three, four, five, and some other shorter paragraphs, and then conclusions. Hmm. It's a little longer than I thought. I may uh, extend this to next week. Let me read um, uh, a few more uh, paragraphs. Um, let's see. Heat definition. Okay. So we read Sean Evenigan's debate with Bosterman. We read that paragraph there. Um, you can't. All right, let's begin to read this paragraph here, and then maybe I'll I'll break this off and pick this up next week. It's worth reading, uh, especially when our in our discussion with Trinitarians versus Unitarians. I, honestly, let me say this in closing, in case you don't catch it. As a biblical Trinitarian myself, I am actually not out to sever my ties from Unitarian uh, biblical Unitarians. I'm seeking to find some common ground and come to some more. You can call this eclectic perspective if you want to, where I'm trying to kind of synthesize some of what they believe with what I believe. In other words, I'm, I'm of the impression that many non-Trinitarian arguments can simply be reduced to a basic understanding of monotheistic uh, belief in God, which is something that I, as a biblical Trinitarian, affirm. I believe in a monotheistic God. I believe there's only one God. I must affirm that because that's what the Bible teaches. And based on that common starting point, biblical Unitarians also affirm the monotheistic belief that there's only one God. So if we can start there, then we can both we can both begin to have some more meaningful dialogue and try to come come to some a better understanding. I'm not willing to concede that God is less than three, to be honest with you. That's not where I'm going. I'm not willing to say, well, um, at the end of the day, I'm still questioning whether God is three, and I'm hoping that the biblical Unitarian can convince me that God is less than three. That's not where I'm going either. I'm fully convinced from a convictional perspective that God is three, right? He is three, meaning there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I hold that truth with a conviction. I'm not ready to budge or yield on that. I will die out, follow my sword for that. Uh, contrary to other doctrines that I won't follow my sword for, this is one that I would. I do believe there are three persons. But I also believe that Jesus is fully God. He's fully divine. He's full deity. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is fully divine. He's not an impersonal force or thought of God or an object that can be passed around from person to person or something that's just dispatched in, in um, um, agency fashion. He is fully God. He's the third person of the Trinity. So I hold that with a conviction because, because I, that's the way I understand the Bible to be revealing um, the nature of God. But what I'd like to do in holding these discussions where I'm reading through these blogs and things like that is to be able to have a more well-meaning dialogue with biblical Unitarians in hopes of um, 
helping them to see some of the deficiencies in the perspective that they hold. My prayer is that they would come over and jump ship and become uh, biblical Trinitarians as well, drop the Unitarian label and become biblical Trinitarians like myself. But until that time comes, I at least want to seek to better educate them on the way they're misunderstanding some of the Unitarian perspectives like I think they are. So let me read this um, paragraph and probably then draw it to a close. Let me see. One, two... Maybe we can read down through and stop at the questions. So let's read these last two or three paragraphs and stop where he talks about the questions. This author concludes, or at least I'm concluding in my study tonight. Like the atheist, the Unitarian will not actually formulate an argument that supports this claim. Finnegan's debate performance is a good example of this. When he, in his opening statement, attempts to formulate an argument that the Trinity is illogical, he describes what many Trinitarians believe that there are three persons who are distinct yet are fully God. Continuing, he says that when someone uses this term, he has defined himself out of a definition. Um, did I read all of that already? Cross their eyes, Melia. I already read all that, so I don't need to repeat myself. Sorry. Let's drop down. Uh, this author continues. This leads me to the other related way that atheists and Unitarians argue in the same way. Remember, he's arguing in this blog, this Trinitarian, is arguing how the thought processes and logical um uh, deductional reasoning that Unitarians use is uncomfortably similar to atheists in the way atheists argue against the existence of God. And this is done whether the biblical Unitarian believes or not, believes that he's doing so or not. In many cases, I'm of the impression that, the, that this Trinitarian blogger doesn't uh, believe that the Unitarian is, is aware of it. I'm also of the impression when I dialogue with Unitarians or non-Trinitarians, not all of them are, are Unitarians. Some of them are just oneness. Some of them are Jehovah's Witnesses. Just non-Trinitarian is the label I'm giving them. Some of them aren't aware of the, of the way their logical processes are flowing until they step back and maybe reanalyze their own arguments. Um, me, myself, being a student of, of psychology and philosophy, both, um, those are some things that I kind of look for at the very beginning, some things that kind of just... Um, come to the forefront of a, of a discussion that I have with people right away. Very, very early on, I begin to detect the thought processes. So I'm kind of right in tune with this particular Trinitarian blogger in trying to show how that there's an uncomfortable or disturbing overlap between the way an atheist processes biblical information and the way a biblical Unitarian processes biblical information. So this blogger says, this leads me to the other way that, that they're related. Unitarians think the result of their own thinking are the same thing as logic itself. As such, they look at the scriptures and make assumptions about what it would say if the Trinity were true, right? Similar to the way that uh, atheists would say, if God really existed, then why doesn't X condition exist? Inevitably and ever so conveniently, those assumptions lead to conclusions that do not match the scriptures, leading them to conclude that the Trinity isn't biblical. And then this author says, let's consider a couple of examples. And then um, at this point in time, he's going to start asking a series of questions uh, as postulated by the biblical Unitarian as to, and it's similar to the way the, um, the, 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 the premises of the atheists would question if God 
does exist, why don't we have X condition? So let me read this final paragraph. We'll pick this up again next week, and we'll start with this paragraph. In an article titled, Is Jesus God? Logical Questions That Need Answering, John Shanehite asks a series of questions. I'm going to say Shanehite until I know for sure what he's, what he's how I pronounce it. John Shanehite asks a series of questions that are intended to cast doubt on the deity of Christ, but these questions all assume, notice the word assume, right? We know what happens when you assume. Um, they all assume that Scripture would look a certain way if the Trinity is true. I'll, I'll start, this blogger says, I'll start with a little more detail, but it will get repetitive, so I'll just point out the wrong assumption about the Trinity that each question implies after that, right? Let's look at them. And then next week, I'll look at question number one, and this would be a a non-Trinitarian question about the Trinity. Question, if Jesus is God, how could he die for our sins? This is a typical non-Trinitarian question. We'll begin to look at the answers next week. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarian. And with that, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. I'm aware that I don't have all the answers. That's my limitation. But I know that you do have the answers, and so I rely on you. I'm going to continue to press in to your Holy Spirit for the revelation that is available to me in your word and is available to me via your spirit. Doesn't mean you're going to explain everything to me all at once. Um, it would be nice if you did, but I'm painfully aware that uh, it's not going to happen that way. For that reason, I also avail myself of the thoughts and commentaries of other Bible students and other experts in their own field of studies, language studies, history, uh, and things like that. I want to learn more about um, you, and I want to learn more about your word, and so I think you've given uh, tools here and there to help us uh, be able to come to a better understanding of who you are and what your plans are for mankind. This includes the topic that I'm talking about in my segment one, where I'm talking about eschatology and end-time prophecy. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a huge behemoth uh, or juggernaut of a topic that has so many pitfalls um, unless... Uh, I undertake the uh, the study carefully and prayerfully, uh, Lord, with humility. Right, I'm I'm not of the impression that I have all the answers, um, but I'm I'm highly interested in the topic. So, Lord, help me where I don't understand, and um, um, continue to um, draw me closer to you in an effort to understand more and more, if that's your will. And likewise with these topics, these studies in segment two about Trinity versus a non-Trinity. Um, I don't have all the answers, but your word is. Um, uh, um, authoritative, and it's the final answer. And so I'm going to continue to look there for my um, understanding of who you are, uh, believing in a perfect faith and with a conviction that what you've left for us in your word is authoritative, it's trustworthy, it's accurate. And even though it doesn't have all the um, uh, details that I wish it did, there's information gaps in places here and there leading to slight ambiguity and, and uh, unarticulated information. Lord, nevertheless, what I do have is um, enough to give me a proper relationship with you and to help me to um, lead my life in a way that's pleasing to you. So continue to bless us as your children, continue to raise us up, continue to protect us and provide for us, and we'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. Oh,